What has happened in the last week that you're proud of in regards to the construction industry? Hmm. I think the main thing that's happened is that I've been working with a couple of very fine colleagues in the Northern California community of practice, and we have finally settled down into how we're going to communicate about an upcoming training in uh, April and May, which has to do with leadership uh, of high-performance teams in construction projects, and it's actually going to be a really exciting training. I'm very excited about that training too. And I'm one of the first people to sign up once that goes live, Vic. So people will put a link in the show notes. Um, and if, if it passes by, uh, with the time that the show goes live, you can still contact Vic because there'll be training opportunities for this, uh, coming up in different places and ways. So you didn't miss out, but if you're feeling that FOMO, you should be Victor, what is the challenge with, uh, leadership, especially when it comes to construction projects that, you, you felt that a good countermeasure to the thing you're seeing is to create a, a leadership course. Well, actually, this is uh, has to do with kind of a legacy project for me uh, at my stage in the construction industry. I was around and knew Glenn Ballard and Greg Howell long before Lean Construction started. We actually worked on collaborative organizational change going back to about 1984 when Glenn and Greg went through facilitation training at a company I was working at called Interaction Associates. And we hired uh, Glenn Ballard away from Bechtel to come work with us at Ford Motor Company. So I was very interested in the power of collaboration, the power of teams to do extraordinary things. And leadership, of course, has a lot to do with how you organize projects and organize people. So. We uh, were working at Ford to rethink their whole product development process. And a big part of the product development process and the problems they were having, especially compared to the Japanese, was that all of their engineering disciplines were separated into different buildings with different administrative structures and different budgets. And there was a small group of people who ran frantically from building to building around the Ford campus with a budget in one hand and a, a schedule in the other, trying to beat the senior management into giving them people to work on vehicle programs. And uh, there's a direct parallel between that. I think people can see probably pretty easily. And the fact that we have so many independent trades with independent contracts and independent management struggling to put their resources between one project or another and uh, not really working together very effectively under a common cause as if they were part of a common enterprise. And so going way back to the 1980s, I got exposed to companies changing the way they thought about how they develop and create things and how people need to work together. And uh, my particular job in that process at Ford was to work with the program management team and rethink how program management was done using uh, principles of facilitative leadership, a different style of leadership than Ford had ever, ever used before. Pretty antithetical to the old Henry Ford. You can have it any color you want as long as it's black. So that's, the, that's kind of where I started as a young man in this idea of organizational transformation and how you can transform an industry. And I've been interested in that ever since. 
Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better, for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by Bosch Refine My Site is a cloud-based construction collaboration platform that applies lean principles to enable your entire team to plan, communicate, and execute in real time. It's the digital tool that works in tandem with your last planner system process and puts it all together in one simple, collaborative ecosystem system. This easy-to-use platform is available in English, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and French and can be used on desktops, tablets, and mobile devices. According to Spencer Easton, scheduling manager at Oakland Construction, Refine My Site, in my opinion, is the best, leanest tool on the market for the last planet. Here's what our users have to say. We've looked at three other digital scheduling platforms and none compare to the straightforward approach Refund My Site takes. From milestone planning all the way down to daily tasks, this program gives every general contractor and their trade partners meaningful collaboration, accountability, and KPIs. Register today to try Refund My Site for free for 60 days. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now, to the show. Welcome to the show, Victor Ortiz, or as I like to call him, Vic. Vic has been just incredible in the lean construction space for eons. It feels like eons, Vic, but it's like, you know, the first time I met you, I just randomly was sitting down at a table to eat some food, minding my own business. We were at a lean construction, Northern California event in Walnut Creek. And uh, Victor turned to me after he heard me running my mouth, which people that know me know that I like to often run my mouth. And Victor knows I'm a extrovert with the capital E. And he, uh, he made some comments to me about some very like cutting psychological comments or he just, I felt like he could see right through me and he knew exactly what kind of person I was. And I thought, I got to get this guy's card because this guy, he's got an edge here. And then uh, come to find out later, he's been involved in lean construction for a long time since the beginning. And we became uh, fast friends and faster friends recently, now that we're both involved in the Lean Community Practice Northern California. So I'm happy to welcome you to the show, Vic. I can't say enough good things about you. We'll have to do a whole nother show on uh, what you said to me. We're going to exclude that from this conversation. If people, if you're dying to know what Vic said, just direct message me and I'll tell you, because that's the kind of person I am. But uh, Vic, why don't you go ahead and tell the good people of the EBFC show a little bit about yourself. And while Vic is doing that, ladies and gentlemen, give us some feedback. Go ahead and hit the like button, follow, share this with a friend, and tap on the description below to get even more details about Victor and how to connect with him so that you can go deeper in this conversation. Well, thanks for those kind words, Stanley Bay. It's been fun uh, getting to know you too. And and we do have uh, similar minds, which can be dangerous. We, We like to play in the realm of ideas and concepts and trying to understand things. And that may make us a little bit different than many people who listen to the show. 
Uh, I know from my studies of psychology with a master's degree in psychology many, many years ago, that people are born with different wiring. Many people are wired, more people, in fact, are wired uh, to try to deal with very concretely with the world and want very specific, detailed instruction about how to do things. And a smaller number of people are more visionary and are looking at uh, what you'd call a big picture down versus a small increment up kind of approach. You and I both think in rather big picture items, and that may frustrate people a little bit because they're saying, well, come on, just get to the point. Tell us what to do. <laughs> and unfortunately, what I'm seeing right now is that a lot of people in the construction industry uh, are trying to do things that they're told to do specifically, trying to do last plan or trying to do 5S, trying to do uh, root cause analysis. And they don't have the underlying mental model of what they're trying to do. And they don't get very good results. A, a simple example of that might be the common practice of doing a uh, plus delta at the end of a meeting. And you know, what worked, what didn't work. I see this happening all the time. I'm one of the people through my association with Interaction Associates and the training of Glenn and Greg in facilitative behaviors to introduce that idea to the whole, what has turned into the lean construction industry. That was an Interaction Associates technique. The purpose of doing that is to get people to think about what's going on in the meeting and whether the interaction and the way the meeting was planned, the whole process of how the meeting was run really worked or not. Did we accomplish what we wanted to? Was the experience a useful experience? Did you learn, Did you grow? Did you have a chance to speak? When the person starting the, the plus delta has not had in their head an idea of what a great meeting looks like so that they can compare what just happened in this meeting with that model of a great meeting, they really don't know what to ask or how to direct questions in a plus delta to get useful information. So we always get, oh, the food was okay. Oh, they talk too much, whatever it might be. But if, for instance, somebody was dominating, a much more useful question might be, how did we do at keeping the conversation open and balanced? Or how did we do at making sure everybody felt heard? Or how did we do at capturing all these ideas so that we can use them? In other words, your underlying mental model of what you're trying to do with any given tool or technique, lean or otherwise, shapes the way you deploy it. It shapes the way the, the tool is going to work. And if you're getting garbage out of a tool and not getting the results that we want in projects or in meetings or in interactions in our projects, that's probably due to not being clear enough about why we're doing what we're doing, what it's supposed to have. Uh, what's the effect it's supposed to have. So at this point in my life, I realize there's lots of new people in the construction industry who weren't around in those early discussions. And we lost a level of rigor and a depth of understanding of what we're doing that, that I think is really essential. Without that understanding, we are kind of doomed to mediocrity. And if there's something at sort of the end of my career life that I would like to leave with the industry. It's that deeper understanding of the conceptual basis of lean construction, the techniques and many of the concepts in it, 
some people are clear about what they're supposed to be doing at any given time. And most importantly, why they are doing it, what they're trying to accomplish, what the purpose is, what success looks like. Absolutely spot on, Vic. And, and I think while you know people are listening to some of the background and the deeper, richer meaning of the plus delta, I don't think a lot of people today know that it, it didn't always exist in construction. And now it's very widespread, at least in the circles that we travel in. Some of you listening to the show might still be thinking, what's a plus delta? I just so happen to have a plus delta video on YouTube, and I will be sure to put a link in the show notes below where my uh, my child makes an appearance as one of the participants in the plus delta and he actually said exactly what Vic said, but at least the food was good, almost to a quote, Vic. I mean, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But I, I told my son, this is some of the things that people in construction say when they just scratch the surface. And like Vic is saying, if you understand the concept, you want to go deeper. As a meeting facilitator, I want to get from the participants, like, what about this was valuable for them? And what do we need to change for the next time? And I'm not just going to ask and say those two things like Vic is alluding to. If you have designed in your mind what this meeting should be, it changes how you ask people. Vic, I've seen a lot of people, you know, check the box on a plus delta and pencil whip it, so to speak, to just do it. And I've seen more facilitators than would even seem possible interject in the plus delta and argue with people giving them feedback. Have you ever seen that, Nick? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This brings up the, uh, probably the difference between a neutral facilitator and somebody who's trying to be a facilitative leader, but feels like they have complete ownership of the meeting rather than the ownership being dispersed among the members and everybody feeling ownership for the quality of the meeting, which goes back to this idea of an underlying model. So I'm wondering maybe, uh, I should go back to the early question about sort of how did I get into this and who am I? Because I don't have a degree in construction management. I don't have a degree in engineering. I have a degree in psychology. And so what the heck is a psychologist doing in the construction industry? You know, not somebody who would normally get there. So I'm going to start with a little uh, confession because it, it speaks to what it takes to change your mind and what it takes to change your life. So I'm a child of the 50s and was a teenager in the 60s and did everything that teenagers in the 60s did, uh, in particular, a lot of drugs. And <laughs> I did that partly. Vic, I just want to say this is the first ever on my show, an admission of heavy drug use. And we've had a lot of people that were teenagers in the 60s. So people, when you listen back to the guests that I've had on, I just want you to imagine them like like Vic, but Vic is brave to admit it. So I appreciate that. Well, I just, I'd, I'd say, I think we all know that if somebody says, but I didn't inhale, that they're lying through their teeth. <laughs> so I did. And I, I got in trouble as a teenager. Um, I, my original interest was, I think, because of a very uh, sort of emotionally constipated Norwegian Midwestern upbringing, I didn't know how to deal with my feelings worth a darn. It was not a thing that guys in Midwest did have feelings, deal with feelings, work with relationships. And that deficit was really damaging to me. But I was interested when Life magazine had uh, and Time had these headlines saying, you know, tune in, drop out, turn on, 
blow your mind, expand, learn about your mind. You know, that was intriguing to me because nobody was talking about that stuff. School was just rote memorization and feedback. I was interested in learning about my mind. I needed to because I didn't understand my mind very well at all. So that led me into uh, drug abuse treatment. And I was too proud to admit that I needed to be a, a, a patient or uh, somebody like that in, the, in initial uh, years. And I went off and got training to be a drug abuse counselor, figuring maybe I could sneak in there and, and learn something myself. And I ended up moving from Wisconsin to California and worked for five years in what's called a therapeutic community, which was kind of a radical idea at the time that a bunch of people who had problems could get together and radically change their lifestyle by working together in kind of a communal fashion. But it got me very interested in the whole idea of the power of community, of what people could do working together and how if you had an overarching system of teaching people how to work, how to treat each other, how to deal with feelings and so on, they could learn a whole different way of life. And I'll say something that's really, this is kind of fundamental to what we do in lean construction as well. There is a difference between a problem and a solution. I'll start with this. The concept that most people have is that when you're uh, having troubles with addiction or so on, you have a drug problem. I'd turn that on, on its head and say, what you have is the drug solution or substance use solution. One of my mentors at that time, the guy who started this therapy at a community said, we all have five fundamental problems. A problem being a situation posed for a solution that you have to find some way to deal with this situation. And those five fundamental things are, what do you do with your free time? How do you make money? How do you build relationships? How do you deal with feelings? How do you find meaning? And the difference between somebody successful and somebody not successful is not that they don't, that they have different problems because we all have those same things. And your lifestyle really is a matter of the solutions that you apply to those issues. If the way I dealt with my free time was to go to the bars, go out and get stoned, that was a solution. It carried with it side effects, results that weren't always very good. If the way that I made money was to deal drugs or to save my money up so I could buy drugs, that was a solution, not a problem. If the way I, I found meaning in my life was to try to hide my feelings and, and you know, whatever, it wasn't a very effective solution. So the idea of the therapeutic community was that if you want better results, you've got to find better solutions. So that's a big part of my underlying mental model is that the problems that we have, including in the construction industry, stem from a bad set of solutions. And those bad solutions are not something we choose intentionally. We don't go out and say, and nobody does. You don't go out and say, I'm going to do a stupid solution. I could do a better one and get better results, but I don't want to. No. People do best they know how to do. We don't intentionally try to screw ourselves up unless you're suicidal. And then that's often the best solution you know how to do because you're so desperate. So the key to really changing, whether it's your life or your community or your work situation and so on, is to look at the set of solutions that we're applying. What are the basic problems? What are the solutions? So with that as an underlying model, my whole life has been going after learning about better solutions. 
And I do that by finding people who know more than I do, which usually isn't too hard and trying to attach myself to them and figure out what it is that they know that I don't know and what can I do with it. That's how I got into lean construction. I worked for a small consulting firm after I got done working in the drug program. They introduced me to this little book, yellow book called How to Make Meetings Work by two architects, no less, Doyle and Strauss, who became master facilitators in all kinds of, of meetings, community organizing, construction meetings, you name it. And I worked with them starting in the early 80s uh, to learn and really hone my facilitation skills, went off to work at Ford to rethink product development, got called into um, Pac Bell, who were building a new office building in uh, 1983, 84. It was the first place where we were looking at why they were over budget and behind schedule by putting post-it notes up on the wall and trying to map out what had gone on in the first of four office towers that was throwing them behind schedule. And sitting in the back of the room was Greg Howell, who was also hired by, uh, from Stanford, uh, by the Pacific Bell Construction Group. And then the rest became history. Greg said, wow, I've never seen superintendents work together like this. I've never seen anybody process map with post-it notes. This crap is brilliant. I've never seen facilitation like this. I got to know this. So he brought along the smartest guy he knew who was Glenn Ballard and they went through the training and, uh, the facilitation tools, the things that you hear now, like, uh, go slow to go fast. If you don't agree on the problem, you won't agree on the solution. All of that comes from interaction associates back in late seventies and early eighties. So with that in mind, my approach to this, I got called in a lot to facilitate the early meetings of the Lean Construction Institute because I needed good facilitators. And Greg Howell and I facilitated a lot of partnering efforts in the design build world before Lean Construction came along. So it was a, a call in all of these different industries to figure out how people could work together more effectively. And there are two pieces of that, the people part and the technical part, and we can talk more about that. But that's basically how I got into this, and I've been fascinated with it. I love an industry where you're building something physical, where you can see whether it's a car or a building, you can be in it, does things for you or to you, and uh, it either works or it doesn't, and you can see it being built up physically. To me, that's much more satisfying than software, though if, I'm sure if I had that mentality, I would see the software development the same way as seeing the functionality being built. But that's my, my approach. I, I really think how we think about organizations, how we think about our own thinking, how we think about the force of habit and what it takes to change all of that fits together into a larger picture of how we transform this industry. It's incredible, Vic. And the, the more you talk and Vic and I have spent hours together, it's now accumulating to days. I have that same meeting book, Vic, on my bookshelf over my shoulder. Uh, just below the bolt sign over there. And I read through that. It, that book was given to me as a gift from a young uh, project manager that was getting some more design build type of work. And he recognized that uh, the way that he was facilitating meetings was terrible and ineffective. And he said, uh, we should develop a training based on what this book says. As that was his solutioning to the problem. I read the book and I said, let's do it. And then he got busy, changed positions, and then never ever picked it back up again. I have no idea 
his meetings got better or not. I never heard from that individual again. We'll put a link to the that book title for people who want to read it. I will caution the reader that the book is a little dated. So yeah. some of the vocabulary is not uh, current cutting edge, you know, Gen Z friendly for sure. It's not going to ever have any references to keeping anything a hundred or uh, asking you about your fam. But I will say that the concepts and the processes in that book are solid for meeting facilitation. And I use them all the time. We run a lot of meetings and even inside the bulk company, sometimes I'm brought in just to facilitate a meeting as a, a disconnected, disinterested third party, especially when topics are heated and there's a lot of disagreement. Having a, an independent facilitator just allows things to come together and, and kind of grow to where it needs to. Uh, I've been in meetings with, with Vic on, on our planning calls for what we're doing with our lean construction community here in Northern California. And it's always fun to have Vic in the meetings. And, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet, but his humor is like incredible. He is a natural dad joke machine. And <laughs> so right. I, it's, like, it's hard to see between you and Dan uh, who, who's faster at the, at the quips. Comes from being a natural dad. I would say that the first year that I was at Interaction Associates was spent in part doing training. They had a, a two-day manager meetings workshop, <clears throat> taught meeting facilitation skills, and then they had an advanced facilitator workshop, which was very intensive and involved a lot of videotaping of people doing facilitation, you know, about 60 problem-solving tools you had to learn, a very intense four-day course. It took a year of doing a minimum of two trainings a month before they would let me lead one of those, even the basic two-day course. I got pages and pages of feedback on my facilitation on how my personal psychology was coloring the way I responded to somebody. It was intense. And in the 40-some years since I went through that initial training, and then learn to be a trainer. I've trained more than 3,000 people in these skills. And that is the basis of the leadership, what we're now calling high-performance leadership, that we're going to put into two days of workshops, intensive workshops in four sessions that the Northern California Community of Practice will put on in April and May. You may think you've got facilitation skills, but having <laughs> gone through it here, of being battered about with feedback and, and uh, working on trying to perfect my skills, I can tell you that there's a lot of practice and a lot of learning and a lot of important, deeper understanding of what you're trying to do with these tools and how you use them that you got to have if you're going to become a really effective facilitator. And facilitation is only one part of being a collaborative leader, how you engage people in projects to be more productive and have more fun and do better work. That's definitely true. And I, I'll share two quick stories, Vic, myself. Uh, I talk a lot about Scrum, as as Vic knows. He's been around me. It, it, it comes up in every conversation. And in the early days when I first tried it, uh, my son was just a, a young kid, barely more than a toddler. And I tried the stuff with him. And I thought, if I can get this young kid to do this stuff with me, I can get anybody to do it. And I used him as my, he was my little laboratory. Mm. I would uh, try courses on him. And if I'd lost his attention, I would change how I present. And it's radically transformed how I present and engage. And then 
some years ago, we did uh, some course development with Scrum Incorporated for the Construction Scrum Registered Scrum Master course. And the people, very smart people that helped put that course together, um, the muscles for feedback were not as well developed because they hadn't had a toddler beating them down on a quote unquote boring or not content that doesn't hit or land. And so that was very incredible. And then I use that same type of thinking and I'll tell people what the rule is. The underlying rule, if you're making something with the purpose of persuading or teaching and you're, you're asking for feedback as you're refining it, this is the rule that I use. And Vic, let's see if this rule resonates with you. When people give me feedback, no matter what my knee-jerk reaction is, the only thing I can do is write it down and ask questions to really understand what they're telling me, mm-hmm. but I will not engage in arguing with them. And so I did this with the a lean construction course. We were one of the first people to test target value delivery when it came out in 2018. And Vic, we took me and Cromwell Burgos, did it with a bunch of pre-construction people. We had the post-it note size uh, flip chart paper. So this is the big flip chart paper that you can stick on the wall. We did the course in two days because we couldn't get people to sit for eight hours, which is part of the learning too and getting information. It's an eight hour course. We had 28 sheets, solid notes of deltas on that course, Vic, the first time we did it, which caused us to change the slide deck, change the messaging, change the hands-on exercises, change the math, change the problems, and even change breaks. <laughs> that major changed so many things right. because of how we uh, <clears throat> tested that in the wild. And we kept, Krom and I kept that rule that we will not argue with people when we're getting feedback to make this better. And then the next time we did the course was with some clients and design partners. And the feedback from them was best course ever. Right. <laughs> and so, and we joked, so, we were honest about, uh, you know, what we went through. We didn't go through the gauntlet that you did for two years, but I'm looking forward to uh, getting feedback from you when I go through your leadership course to understand uh, where I could be better as a facilitator and then translate that into teaching others to be better facilitators. Cause that's definitely a need we have in the industry for sure. Ken Blanchard, who was you know, a, a great management guru and wrote the book, the, the one minute manager, and then a bunch of one minute books after that used to say feedback is the breakfast of champions. So that's, that's a pretty good pretty good line. You know, we want to focus this on leadership and thinking and Vic and I both are devotees of William Edwards Deming. And Deming is the first person that taught me that theory will cloud and change the lens through which I do and act and behave. What do you want to share in terms of like thinking or just related to people's leadership styles? Because as you know, Vic, uh, as a study of psychology, there's a lot of the same type of personality types in the construction industry. There's a lot of people focused on getting things done, which is what we need for sure. And there's not a lot of focus on how we get those things done and what cost it has on the people doing the work. So yeah. I want to let you you know, share. And people, if you're listening to the show uh, on your favorite podcast platform, thank you for listening. Um, Vic and I will also be sharing and I will narrate what Vic shares on the screen for those of you listening at home, but you're welcome to come back and watch the YouTube video of this as well in the future to see these visuals. 
One of the things that you just mentioned with the, the feedback on the scrub trading, I would guess that most of what was on those sheets of flip chart paper did not have to do with the content of the course, in other words, with what target value deliverers bought, I'll bet they had to do with how the course was delivered. In other words, process stuff. Yes. What we know, and what I know from having trained, like I said, over 3,000 people in facilitation skills, is if you ask people what goes wrong with meetings or what goes wrong with projects, what goes wrong with the interaction of people in the work setting, what they complain about is not the subject matter of their work or not the building per se or the equipment, but that what goes wrong is the way people are interacting, is the process. And if we're thinking about construction and thinking about how you get hired, if you're a craft worker or a, a construction company, a specialty contractor, people hire you believing that they're hiring you for what you know. In other words, we are a knowing culture. If you go into a job interview or put in a bid, you're busy trying to justify what you know and what you can do. The idea that you would go in and say, well, we're really a great learning culture in this construction company probably has never been in a bid response ever. Never been said, guaranteed. So we are in this particular bind that we sell ourselves based on what we know. And when, uh, as Deming said, when you are in a system, the system knows what the system knows. And your ability to learn within the system gets restricted by the boundaries around what we all know. And so when other industries are advancing and becoming much more productive, and we in the construction industry still have 80 plus percent of our projects going over budget and being late <clears throat> and having other quality problems, we're not going to learn just from inside the industry. If we don't go out, we have to expand our thinking. Doyle and Strauss, having asked this question, you know, what goes wrong with meetings and what do we do about it, came to the conclusion that most people are what they call process blind, that we come to a meeting to talk about the subject of the meeting. That's the content of the meeting. Yet, if you ask them what goes wrong, and most of their answers are, are process problems, you know, I wasn't listened to, we got off topic, we've lost track of time, we weren't clear what we were going to come up with at the end of this meeting. We didn't know how we were going to decide. I thought we were going to decide and then the boss told us what to do without our input. All of those kinds of complaints have to do with the process of the meeting. And if we are process blind and we don't even spend any time at the beginning of the meeting, not only going over what we're going to talk about, but how we're going to talk about it, then we reinforce this sort of blindness to process and we all become kind of victims of our own blindness about the fact that there are many different ways we could approach these subject matter topics, and some of them work a whole lot better than others. It's back to this idea of if you're getting crappy results, it's because the solution you're using, i.e. the process, the method, the tactics you're using suck. So if you want better results, you got to use a better process. And lean is actually all about the process of production. So not only are we process blind, but we tend to look at our projects as a set of trades working together to get something built. We don't think of it as a production system. And actually, every time we come together to build a project, 
What we're doing is we're putting in place a production system, starting with the production of concepts and understanding about what description of what the project's about, to the design, to the choice of components and elements that are going to go into it, to the actual construction. Everything we're doing produces something. It produces an agreement, a drawing, a design, a purchase, a delivery of a supply and installation, a result of an inspection. All of that is stuff that we are producing. And I would suggest that if you produce stuff of any sort, that means there must be a production system in place. And just like going into the meeting, we go into our projects without really being aware of what that production system's underlying model is. And if we're not getting the results we want, we may have to go back and examine that underlying model and rethink what some of our assumptions are about what makes for a good project, how we control it, how we manage it, how we design it. If we even consciously design it at all, or are we just working out of habit because that's the way we've always done business? Those are solid points. And I think uh, for a lot of people, you can see that the experience that Vic has is such that uh, I can't get enough Vic. <laughs> and so, but I've just uh, want to be cognizant uh, of your time, Vic. And I'm going to just set the stage. People, we're going to have to have Vic come back onto the show in future episodes, because there's so much more to unpack. And just that last phrasing of what he said, as far as our ability to design or influence the systems that we are in play with. But if you think about the projects that you're on now, and you just ask yourself, are we delivering what we actually want? You might be surprised to find out that it's not aligned. And if you talk to people on your team and you have 10 people, don't be surprised to get 10 different answers, but think when on coming to that project, did you ever sit down or stand up or look at something and discuss what it is you're actually in fact trying to do? It's mm -hmm. funny because I facilitate a lot of meetings, especially uh, lean construction techniques and things like uh, pool planning, last planner system production controls, which most people don't even recognize the full name of the thing. It's last planner system of production controls because it's about creating with intention, this production system on your site. I will spend time at the beginning of a meeting with trades or architects and designers of different various types of engineering disciplines and give some space to talk about what are we actually building? Mm -hmm. and the feedback that I've gotten from a, from a lot of people, if we have time for feedback that's appropriate, is we never talk about what we're actually doing and that we just kind of throw together a bunch of people that have skills and knowledge and cross our fingers and just think it's going to happen because we've got the right people here. And uh, like you said, that's not enough. We need a little bit more. Yeah. Maybe a lot more, <laughs> <laughs> a lot more, but uh, do you want to share anything? And, uh, and some of the time we have left, do you want to share your screen and, and put some images and some visuals up? Well, I, I think we, um, I'll share just uh, one image that, that I have here that is a typical LCI image, and maybe this can spark uh, the next uh, conversation that we have. Can you believe how fast time flies, Vic, when you're talking to me on a recorded show? Yeah, as I say, time flies when you're having flies, as the old <laughs> frog joke goes. <laughs> um, so here's, here's this very typical um, uh, slide that LCI uses a lot. And I guess I'd say as a teaser, um, 
I have some problems with this slide and there's a lot of good stuff in it, but I think there's some stuff that, that also goes to our underlying model and, um, and maybe for the next discussion. So we, um, one of the things that I have really stressed with this is that lean talks about a culture of respect and continuous improvement and an operations strategy. And most people have no idea what an operations strategy is. Most people don't know the difference between a strategy and a plan. So again, thinking about the way we think um, is important here. Um, the uh, symbol over here at the right is kind of a change from what you would find if you read the Toyota Toyota Way or um, some of the early lean books, uh, Womack and Jones and others uh, about lean. And, and it has elements like optimizing the whole and continuous improvement and so on as pieces of it. But uh, I think largely due to Greg Howell's work uh, and sensibilities about the importance of human interaction, respect for people goes right to the heart of this model. If you read a lot of the early work about the Japanese um, Toyota system and other uh, transformations in the way they thought about industry based on Deming and Juran and others who visited them in the late 40s and early 50s, um, you didn't hear about respect for people because that was kind of built into the Japanese culture. They worked not on such an individual glory basis, but on a collective way of working. And we have come back and said, well, you know, there, you got all of this stuff about lean and how you're changing work, but what about the people? Um, so I think a lot about this concept of respect, for instance, and in my thinking, because I, I think words are really important, respect is a feeling. I remember being little and being told, well, respect your elders. And I always thought, well, have they earned my respect? Do I actually feel respect? Same. So, you Same know, you can't like order respect. You can order people to behave as if they respected their elders, but you can't order a feeling to happen. So when it comes to respect for people, I often wonder what people think that means. Okay, well, we should treat each other nicely. The deeper question is, how do you put respect for people into action? How do you behave in a way that's worthy of respect when you're leading a, a project? Whether you're a foreman or a superintendent or a senior manager or whatever. Well, so I think this question of how do we behave in ways that are going to engender a sense of respect for our colleagues, how do we create a system where People feel valued, listened to, informed, like they're learning, like they're growing, like they are free to be productive. Uh, that would be a great topic to talk about, I think. Um, and there's some really wonderful ideas about how leaders, the concept of leadership and the job of leadership changes when you start thinking about the process of production and what the relationship of people need to be in that process of production so that people can bring the best of themselves to work and feel good and spend less time complaining and grousing and whining about the miserable conditions in which they work and can start 
feeling like a part of a team that's really making progress. Absolutely. Let's talk, let's talk about respect for people and what that actually means in action. What do you do to demonstrate respect that's, for people? That's a really good one, Vic. And looking at the the six lean construction principles here, I think it was when I dug into the research, it was Dr. Lori Koskela that that wrote a definitive paper calling the six principles out that I cited and went deeper understanding into. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of people don't realize, and Vic has just said it out loud, this is a blending of two cultures. This is an Eastern culture and Western culture. And at the top of this thing, optimizing the whole, one of the things that's more normal in just the language of some of the Asian cultures like Japanese and Chinese and some of the other, like the non-English languages, the language is more synthesis type of oriented, holistic. And the English language tends to be a little more, and I just don't know the words, but it tends to, it, it gets people towards taking things apart and being more analytical. And uh, the frame in which we, we talk and communicate is different. So when we translate the different languages, we get different culture. So it's, this thinking is very embedded, Vic, and it starts with just how we make words and phrase together ideas and concepts, because that's all the words are. And I want to get too ethereal on people, but when you go deeper into these concepts, like it was, uh, you read some of the books about, you know, why companies like Toyota work together. There's been some really great work on looking at how it was, it was actually a samurai culture and agrarian farming culture clashing together in this one particular area that created this very interesting dynamic in Toyota's leadership model, where it's a mix of hierarchical and communal, and they didn't let either one get the upper hand. So it stays like in this tentative balance. And as Vic was hitting on that respect for people part and, and talking about Glenn's, where his coming at this was, there's a whole nother part that goes more into the analytical side, which we've barely touched on with, uh, thinking about project production systems and, and more systems thinking, um, so much more to unpack, Vic. Yep. Well, and I'd say for all of those who are saying, okay, well, that was a whole bunch of conceptual stuff he just threw at us. And so what the nice part about this is that everything that we've just talked about can be brought down to very practical behavioral thoughtful, strategic things that you can do that will dramatically improve productivity in your work environment and, incidentally, make you look a whole lot better as a manager and a whole lot more essential to your projects. When I was reading this little yellow book, you know, for the first time, it was saying things like, at the beginning of the meeting, before, before you have a meeting, have an agenda. And in your agenda, don't just have a list of topics. Make sure that you know what the desired outcome of the meeting is, what the purpose is and the desired outcome. And if you can't, in the first two minutes of the meeting, say what the purpose of the meeting is and what desired outcome you're coming up with. Example, what's the difference between a meeting that's there to identify problems, which you are doing with your feedback, for instance, in the Scrum presentation, or a meeting to solve a problem. If you're unclear whether you're just trying to identify and understand a problem or solve the problem, you're going to have everybody jumping to solutions because nobody likes living with problems and you're not going to get a decent definition. Then you're going to get a solution to a problem that you haven't defined and it's probably not going to work. Simple things like 
stopping and saying, so before we start this meeting, let's be clear, do we all understand what our desired outcome is? To me, that's a very practical thing that most people don't do in meetings. And I sat here going, oh, why don't we do that? Why didn't I think of that? Oh, that's so simple. That would solve so many things. I thought, and, and I realized that this was full of concrete, simple things to do that nobody does and that will change things. And I think the Lean Construction Toolkit is full of tools like that as well. We don't do them because we don't understand what the problem is that we're trying to solve and what a good, effective solution would look like. So I want to talk more about those kinds of things in, in future podcasts. And I promise our audience that uh, we will talk both theory and very practical application. Yeah, another good, we'll give some, for all the practical people, and there's there's more of you than the the wishy, cloudy people like Vic and I. An easy thing to do in meetings is to look people in the eye when you're talking to them and use their first name. If you're on a construction project and you refer to people by their company name, you are limiting your ability to connect with them, to get buy-in and alignment. And you are not, I'm telling you right now, you are not showing respect for that person across the table from you. So there you go. There's some practical stuff that I correct that on almost every project I go to, Vic. Mm -hmm. Ever since I read that book, because they talk about how to address people in the meetings, think that these things that we think that just people know just because they work at a certain company or they're, or they're in a certain position, they don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and this gets into the whole, another area beyond meeting management is a whole area of interpersonal communication and how we deal with difficult situations. So that's another topic. And then which people do you invite? How do you engage which people? When do you engage them? How do you engage them so you get the best use of their time and everybody feels like this was a productive thing to do? Um, how do you solve problems and, and come to consensus decisions that actually get implemented? I hear lots of people say, you know, yeah, we talked about stuff and they say, do you agree? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the agreement falls apart as people are walking out the door. So there are all kinds of techniques to change that and to make things work a whole lot better that we can do. Yeah. And I'll brag on Vic for a second. We had a meeting and we were going through planning this leadership training. And at the end of the meeting, as people were trying to leave or change the topic, Vic, share, he's sharing his screen, opens up a document and just captures what people agreed to do. And I was, I was like, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I, I saw my name on a bunch of things. And uh, there's, I think there were what four of us in the room. And I went back to that document, Vic, this week. And I looked at it and I said, okay, I'm good. And then I saw you know, one person had uh, some action and it got delegated to me because of other things that happened in our group. And I, and I, and I said, thank goodness, Vic, capture that down. So at least I know I'm carrying a little bit of extra workload, but it's totally fun and fine because it meets the purpose of why we got together in the first place. So when that happens, people are more willing to volunteer and take things on because they know why we're doing it. The why is so important. Vic, I want to leave you the last, you get the last phrase to the audience. What's something you want to leave people as they go on to their busy construction day? What can they do to make today more awesome than yesterday? Take a look at what's happening around you. Check on how that affects the way you feel about your work. 
Are there things there that you wish were different? And if there are, and I'm guessing there will be, is there a system in place to make that change happen? Because if there's not, if there's not a system to make continuous improvement happen, if there's not a commitment from senior leadership and the opportunity from every level of leadership and participation down through the whole organization to improve things, you have every right to feel trapped and frustrated. And the problem isn't you, and the problem isn't the people. The problem is that the system needed to make things change for the better isn't in place. Deming said, nobody can perform better than the limits of the system in which they work. No matter how good a performer you are, the system can only work so well. And instead of beating people up, if we look at how to make the system work better, if all of us get engaged in making the system work better and taking ownership for great performance, we are going to outperform everybody else in our project because they're not making that effort and we are. So that's the thing to do. Look around and see, you know, like what is bugging you? And is there a system in place to deal with that, to correct that situation quickly and effectively? And if there isn't, then that's a hint at what's missing in the way we manage our projects today. Oh, I love that, Vic. The future is bright. I'm hopeful and I'm looking forward to using more systems thinking for better project delivery, easier, better, faster construction. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build.